Our reading this morning is from 1 John, chapter 4. Our reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 4 from verse 13 to 21. We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us first. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Good. Is the um, buzzing noise, is that us or is that people next door? It's us. If it is us, I think we'll just switch off and I'll manage without a microphone. Um, it does sound a bit like we're inside a Boeing 747. Good, well do please um, keep your Bibles open. I'm going to pray for us as we come to this um, passage. It's really the high watermark of the letter, but it's not an especially easy passage as you read it. So we do need God's help. Let's ask for it now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of an open Bible, your word to all mankind. And we pray that you would draw near to each one of us now by your Holy Spirit. Please open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good, well, um, I hope you have got your Bibles open because our text, our key verse this morning is verse 16 where John writes, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Now last Sunday morning uh, we were reminded that the love of God is one of the main themes of this letter. And in verse 16, the Apostle John, now in his 80s, says that every Christian can...
can rely on it. They can build their whole lives on it with complete confidence. It's a marvellous promise, isn't it? Uh, But of course, if the promise is going to be meaningful for us, it's important to know what it means. And so this morning I'd like to begin with a quotation from a book by Professor Don Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He says, and I quote, What does God mean when he says, I love you? We may gain clarity by an example. Picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach, hand in hand, at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They kicked off their sandals and the the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you, I really do. Now what does he mean? Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs. But if we assume that he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means, says Don Carson, is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile polaxes me from 50 yards your sparkling good humour, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. End quote. Now that contrast is deliberately shocking because Professor Carson wants to illustrate a a vital but I think largely neglected truth about the love of God. So let's keep Charles and Susan in our minds and we'll return to them a little bit later to discover precisely what this truth is. But if it's going to make any uh, lasting impression on us this morning, we've got to start by coming to the passage which Dimitri read and seeing what John has to say about it. And the first thing I want us to notice is that John is repeating something he said before. In verse 8 of the same chapter, John says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And now he repeats those last three words again in our passage this morning in verse 16. Now that's significant because the writers of the New Testament never waste words. 
Every single word counts. And for John to repeat this great statement about God in the space of only a few verses is telling us that this is something of the utmost importance. We will never truly understand what Christianity is all about unless we understand what the Apostle means when he says, God is love. Now, uh, I guess at this point somebody in the congregation is probably thinking, well look, I know all of this, Simon. Let's move on to something new. But if that is you, please don't forget the context. John was writing to mature Christians. They also knew this with their heads. In fact, they'd known it for years. But as we reminded last Sunday morning, uh, these dear people had been spiritually molested. Uh, A number of high-profile people had walked out of the churches telling anybody who would listen that they were super spiritual and anyone who did not follow in their footsteps must be on the wrong track. Now, of course, if you'd asked these super spiritual people, they would have said, well, yes, of course we believe in the God who is love. And yet, throughout this letter, the Apostle John spills a great deal of ink to show that their behaviour proved the opposite. They were loveless people. In fact, there's more than a hint in the letter that they actually hated the Christians they'd left behind. That's why John says in verse 8 of this chapter, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, he's talking there, isn't he, about the troublemakers. Their behaviour proved they didn't know God at all. But what about the Christians left behind in the churches? They, of course, had been well and truly beaten up. And in light of everything that had happened to them, they needed some help to see that they really were secure in God's love, that the love of God really is the greatest reality in all the world and that they really could rely on it. Now, don't some of us need that reassurance this morning? Aren't there times in our lives when persistent ill health or broken relationships or hardship at home or disappointments in ministry when these things loosen our grasp on God's love? Well, of course there are. And in those moments, the love of God can so easily become just a category in our thinking rather than the overriding motivation for everything we do in our daily lives. Now, the Apostle knows that. And that's why, after a lifetime of pastoral experience, He repeats this great truth. My friends, God is love. And uh, in our passage, the passage that Dimitri read for us, what he does is point to three consequences of that truth. Three unchanging realities 
that every believer can rely on in good times as well as bad. And you'll find these on the inside of the bulletin you were given as you came in this morning. So, number one, because God is love, we can be assured of an intimate relationship. An intimate relationship. Verses 13 to 16. Now, during uh, my childhood, um, our local church was St. Luke's Goostery near Jodrell Bank in England. And uh, my family would make occasional visits at Christmas and Easter. And of course, in those days, services were a great deal more formal than they are today. And in these services, one of the clear impressions I picked up was that if a relationship with God is even possible, and it was by no means clear that it was in those services, then that relationship could only be formal and distant. And it was actually a great deal of years that passed by before I came to realise that is never, never the picture in the New Testament. And it's certainly not the picture in our passage this morning. Now the clue that opens this up is the repetition of the verb to live in. In uh, some translations it's the word abide, And John repeats it three times in these verses to describe the intimate relationship between God and every believer. So come with me to verse 13. In verse 13, John says, We know that we live in God and God lives in us. He says the same thing again at the end of verse 15 and then the same thing again at the end of verse 16. Now let me ask you, does that sound like a formal and distant relationship to you? Well, of course it doesn't. No, it's the language that we use to talk about the place where we make our home, our permanent address. It means to to take up residence somewhere and remain. And John deliberately uses this phrase because it's such a great expression of what it means to be a Christian. You see, to be a Christian is to be at home in God and for God to be at home in us. And the idea, of course, is that home is where your heart is. It's about sharing your life with those that you love and trust. A home is made, isn't it, by the the people that you invite into it and the loving relationships that you develop with them. And my dear friends, that is how it is between the Christian and God. It's about enjoying an intimate relationship with our creator and rescuer, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. The one who knows the very worst about you this morning and yet loves you just the same. 
the one who accepts us just as we are in order to make us what he always intended us to be. The one who doesn't come and go, but abides. The one who doesn't blow hot and cold, but goes on loving always because he is love. And you see, this intimate relationship is at the very heart of the Christian faith. But of course, because it's so very unlike you and me, it's not easy for us to understand it. Uh, So this week I I heard about a missionary couple working in Brazil. Uh, They have a little boy, and in a recent letter home, they announced that he has two favourite sentences. The first is, I love you, and I will share my toys with you. And the second is, I do not love you, and I will not share my toys with you. And what makes the difference is whether you said yes or no to him before he spoke. Now, we may be grown up, but that's rather like us, isn't it? We blow hot and cold. God isn't like that. He goes on loving, no matter what. But you may say, well, okay, Simon, how can we actually be sure of that? And the answer to that question has to do with the nature of love. Because it is the nature of love to give. And God the Holy Trinity has given himself to us in two distinct ways which prove his commitment to every single one of his dearly loved children. And these two gifts define for us what it means to be a Christian. The first is the gift of the Spirit. So look carefully with me again at verse 13. John says, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Now the phrase of his spirit doesn't mean that he's given us just a little bit of his spirit and that somehow you and I have got to try and get a little bit more. It cannot possibly mean that because the spirit is the third person of the Trinity and one of the things about a person is that they are indivisible. So, if the Holy Spirit has been given to us, then God has given his own life to us. And it's not that we have a percentage of that and when we're first converted and then we've got to try and get a bit more. No, the idea is that from the Holy Spirit all the other good gifts of God flow into our lives. And it's so important for us to get this clear. You see, we would never dream of saying, would we, that I've got 60% of my mother-in-law coming for the weekend. Uh, Either she is there, or she is not there. In my case, she is not there, she's in Namibia. And actually, she didn't leave 15% of herself in the guest room because I checked before I left home this morning. 
So when people say, I have received a bit of the Spirit and now I'm looking for more of the Spirit, they actually haven't understood who the Spirit is. He is a person. And becoming a Christian means receiving the Holy Spirit, the very life of God, deep within our souls, in the control centre of our personalities. And that is what being a Christian is all about. God comes into your life in the person of his Spirit. He is the great gift of what we call the new birth. And the life of God in us shows itself, as all life does, in actions and words and activities which the Bible describes as fruit. Fruit which reflects the character of the Lord Jesus. And you see, it's as the Spirit works in us, strengthening us against temptation, giving us new values, teaching us the truth of the Bible and leading us to respond in faith and obedience, as the Spirit works these quiet but very profound changes in our hearts, that we have the proof of the intimate relationship into which God has called us. That God really is at home in us and we are at home in him. Now I think I need to say at this point that if you feel you are not at home in God and that God is not at home in you, well then it's very likely that you've never actually submitted to him, that you've never actually recognised God as God and asked him for the forgiveness of your sins. Now don't worry if you haven't, we could do something about that this morning, you could come and ask me about it afterwards. But I say this because God gives the Spirit to everyone who turns and trusts in him. There is no other way to become a Christian and there is no other way to go on being a Christian. But secondly, God has also given us the gift of his Son. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Now, in the first instance, the, the we in verse 14 refers to the apostles, to the men who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. But it also includes all of us who've come to see the reality of God's love in Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that means we don't think about it just as a nice theory. It means the Holy Spirit living in us has radically changed our attitude to Jesus Christ. That we recognise that he is the Son of God and that in love the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world and therefore my Saviour. That, of course, is the meaning of verse 15, if you'd like to look at it. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, 
God lives in him and he in God. You see, it's confessing Jesus as Son and Saviour that seals this relationship of love from our end, where confessing means acknowledging or stating this as the reality, both by the words I speak and by the way that I live. You see, friends, at the end of the day, there is no greater, no greater proof of God's love than Jesus' death upon the cross for our forgiveness. He died to provide salvation for anybody, anywhere in the world, if only they will acknowledge who Jesus is and submit to his divine authority. And you see, it's when we worship Jesus as Saviour and Lord that we make our permanent residence in his love. It means that we've come to know it, and I mean really know it in our hearts through the ministry of the Spirit as he reveals to us the significance of the saving, rescuing death of Jesus. And the more we understand about his death and what it means for us personally, the more we rely on the love that God has for us. So can you see that because God is love, we are assured of an intimate relationship? But number two, because God is love we are also assured of an ultimate security. An ultimate security. Verses 17 and 18. Now, before uh, we left the United Kingdom, um, I found myself discipling a young man by the name of Stephen. Uh, Stephen was a very sincere Christian, but he'd had a very troubled uh, childhood, and by the time I met him, he'd already been in and out of prison several times. Uh, he was suffering from schizophrenia, and he was quite unable to lead a normal life. And because his life on this earth was so very sad and difficult, he was particularly concerned not to miss out on the life of the world to come. But you see, the problem was his past always seemed to haunt him. And Stephen lived with a paralysing anxiety about what might happen to him on the Day of Judgment. So much so that he took to ringing me up several times a day at all hours of the day and night to tell me about some verse that he'd just discovered in the Bible and he was always worried whether his reading of the verse meant that he was somehow disqualified for heaven. Now, there are many Christian men and women who think about the Day of Judgment along those lines. At the other extreme, there are multitudes for whom the Day of Judgment is actually just a meaningless formality. Because they assume that their character and track record are more than sufficient to guarantee their place in heaven. That, of course, was the attitude of the troublemakers 
who had left the churches in Asia Minor. Their attitude wasn't anxiety, it was arrogant presumption. You remember from last week, they believed they were sinless, that they had overcome evil. But John says that if we've understood the love of God correctly, our attitude to the day of judgment will neither be anxiety nor presumption, but something altogether different. So let's pick up John's argument from the end of verse 16. (coughs) Verse 16. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Not presumption, confidence. So, if we're Christians, when we think about the day of judgment, God actually wants us to be confident. But how does that work? Well, the idea here is that God plants his love in us for a purpose. And that purpose is made complete by his love being given to other people. Now, to understand this, I think it might be helpful to think about the Christian life as a triangle. And if you take out the coloured sheet, you'll see that I've given you a diagram on the reverse. I hope it'll be helpful. See, the three points of the triangle are God, yourself, and your neighbour. And your neighbour may or may not be another Christian. The lines between each point are lines of dynamic, interactive love. So, God loves us personally, and God also loves the world, your neighbour. We respond to God in love for him, for what he's done for us through Jesus. But you see, his love is only made complete when we show that same love to our neighbour and as a result, our neighbour begins to love God as well. And the point is, you see, that it all starts and ends with God. It's the love that we receive from God that enables us to love other people. We couldn't do it otherwise. And then that love returns to God from them so that the triangle of love is complete. Can you see that? It is made perfect. Now, of course, this growing love for God and for one another is evidence of the intimate relationship we've just been thinking about. And John's message is that when we see this happening, it gives us confidence for the day of judgment. So that when we stand before God on the last day, we shall already know our judge, because he is our saviour and rescuer. He is the one who has already forgiven us through his death on the cross. And if you know that the one who's going to judge you 
has already loved you with an everlasting love and rescued you from your sins by dying in your place on the cross, well then there's no need to be anxious. And that's why John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. But I suppose the question is, well, what if we are fearful? What if the prospect of the day of judgment does fill us with anxiety? Can John help us with that? And the answer is he can. Have a look at the little phrase tucked in at the end of verse 17. John says, we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Now what does John mean by that? I mean of course we are in this world but he, that is Jesus, is in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. Now this is brilliant because you see what John is saying is that all that Jesus is in his perfect relationship with the Father we are in God's sight. It's actually an amazing thought. We are totally accepted because of him. We could not be more welcome in heaven or more acceptable or closer to God than Jesus is right now. Now my dear friend, can you feel the wonder of that? And you see, it's that ultimate security, knowing that we're absolutely secure in God's love, not only in this life, but also in the life of the world to come, that drives away fear and helps us to understand the third thing that John has to say. Namely, that because God is love, we are assured of a transforming grace. A transforming grace. Verses 19 to 21. Now he said before that one of the great tensions in the New Testament is that in one breath the Bible tells me to love my brothers and sisters in the local church. All familiar with that. But in the next breath it warns me that won't be especially easy. It says that we have to bear with one another, that we have to forgive one another, that we have to not bear grudges, and a great deal more besides. So, if it's going to be difficult, how are we going to do it? What's going to motivate us to do it? Now, this is actually so obvious that it's very easy for us to miss it but it's actually the clue that points us to the forgotten truth about the love of God. Come with me to verse 19. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. So God took the initiative. It's his grace to us that provides all the resources we need in order to love one another in spite of all the difficulties. 
But you see, friends, the idea here is not that you and I do our best and it doesn't really matter if we fail. It's not that. Rather, the idea here is that the real Christian can't help it. Why not? Because God is love. And if God is living in us, that means his love is living in us as well. You can't separate the two. You can't have the giver without the gift. And that's why love from God the Father must be shown in love for our brothers and sisters. We've all received the same love from the Father. And that's why love in the local church is so obviously the proof of the eternal life that God has given to us. And that, you see, is the logic of verse 20. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. You see, if we claim that we are in a real relationship with the God who is love, how can we not love a fellow believer who is equally loved by God. I mean, it would be sheer nonsense. Incidentally, the word cannot at the end of verse 20 has the idea that everything that this person is professing is complete garbage. He's a liar. He can't be loving God because he doesn't love his brother. And that's why, you see, the command in verse 21 is not simply to love God, but to love your brother and sister also. Do you see this? See, the point is that I can't see your heart towards God, and I can't see whether you love him or not. But I can see your attitude towards me as your brother. And that will be a visible indication of whether the invisible relationship is real or false. And that's because only the God who is love can transform loveless, selfish people like me into loving other followers of Jesus, the saviour of the world. So, as we close... Let's return to Charles and Susan and to the great neglected truth which Don Don Carson is trying to illustrate. He says this, quote, When the God who is love comes to us and says, I love you, what does he mean? Surely he means something like this. Morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. 
not because you are attractive, but because it is my nature to love. And in the case of the elect, God adds, I have set my affection on you from before the foundation of the universe, not because you are wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. You are mine and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love mediated through Jesus. End quote. Can you see what he's saying? John's point, God is love, is that those who really do know God come to love like he does. Doubtless, we don't do it very well. But aren't Christians supposed to love the unlovable, even our enemies? Surely we are. For that is the way it is with God. Let's pray. Let's just um, have a moment of quiet as you reflect on maybe some special insight that God in his spirit has given you this morning to what is love really means. What is love for you really is. Heavenly Father, we, we bow before you, so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us as the God of love and compassion, not just in theory, but in the life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Thank you for sending your Son to be the Saviour of the world. And thank you that as we turn to the Lord Jesus and trust him, you send your Spirit to live within us, God abiding in us and we in you. And so, loving Father, we thank you for this amazing reality at the heart of our faith, that the God who is love transforms us from the inside out. And we pray that as we go out to live our lives this week, that we may do so in intimate relationship with you, sure of our ultimate security, experiencing your transforming grace so that your love for us may flow out to others. And that wherever we work and wherever we serve and whatever we do, 
we may be channels of love back to you in gratitude for all that you've done for us. Thank you that your love enables us to go out into the world and love you with heart and soul and mind and strength. And grant us today grace to trust you and to obey you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.